Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be adapting my outline today from a professor named Stephen Wellam. I could not improve upon the way he broke this passage down, and so uh, let me just give you a quick sense of the outline of the passage, and then we will uh, work through it uh, piece by piece. The title of the message is from, again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58, just simply called the resurrection body, and the three points go like this. The resurrection body is, number one, reasonable, number two, certain, and number three, necessary. The resurrection body is reasonable, certain, and necessary, and you'll see this really does break down the the flow of thought in Paul's mind in the last verses of 1 Corinthians 15. For those who've been here the last two Sundays, we've been working through this chapter in light of Easter and the doctrine of resurrection. Lord willing, next Sunday we will start a, uh, an extended sermon series through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and so we'll be picking up after the Christmas story, which we already covered in Matthew 3 with the coming of John the Baptist. If you're curious where we are going, Matthew 3, uh, Lord willing, will be our text for next Sunday. As we jump back into this topic of resurrection, it is amazing how of all the things today that are off topic that you just cannot talk about in a social setting. I mean, you, you think about how many things you can talk about in a social setting and no one even gets red in the face at all. You could just say all kinds of things. People just, yeah, that's okay. But if there is one topic that is still a taboo, it is the topic of death. Even if I talk about it right now for the next five minutes, some of you will be uncomfortable with that. If I actually try to force you and me to lock eyes with death for a moment and to think about what it is and what it actually means, there is an uneasiness that develops immediately. In common conversation, we want to change the subject. Anything but talking about that. That's the joy killer, the happiness killer. There's nothing to be found there. And I really think that the secular world largely lives just simply in denial about what is obvious and right in front of us. I think that we actually don't know how to think about and to deal with the limitations of our own mortality, and today's passage is going to force us to feel the horror of death, but also to feel the glorious hope of resurrection on the other side. I was reading when the school year began in preparation for my class I was teaching, an apologetics class in high school, and in preparation for that I was reading a famous atheist who's passed away, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he has a book called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. And early in that book, he speaks about the death of the solar system. And he speaks about how in a few billion years, the sun will expand to a red giant and absolutely obliterate the Earth's atmosphere and all water will evaporate and we will have died. He said long before that, the human race will be long extinct at that point. And then as you speak about what will happen, other atheists will speak about how eventually all the stars will burn out. There'll be nothing but empty cold deadness as the universe continues to drift into infinity, and there is no one there to see and no one there to remember. Now, if that's what you actually believe about the future, I want you to think about the implications of that. I, I can't say this enough. If that were true, how can your life right now actually matter? If it is true that there is no final judgment, there's not going to be a justification or condemnation of anyone for any life that they have lived, whether you were Adolf Hitler or the Apostle Paul. At the end of the day, we all get the same treatment, which is nothingness. 
if that is what you believe, you do understand, trying to live a life like there is objective right and wrong is silliness. We came from nothing for no reason. We're headed towards nothing for no reason. Why does now matter? And why do you live like humans have rights? Where do you get that from? Pull a rabbit out of a hat, pull human rights out of a hat. What hat? Who gave you human rights? Where does human dignity, human worth come from? Well, all people talk about these days are the rights of individuals. From whom do you get these rights? If there is no God, if Christ has not risen from the dead, human beings have no objective worth. We are cosmic shrapnel from a big bang headed towards a cosmic extinction for no purpose at all. Why in the world do we think that human dignity is even a thing that's other than something we've invented in our own imagination? We don't understand what death actually does to us. If there is resurrection from the dead, and the resurrection of Jesus proves it, there is eternal hope, purpose, worth, dignity. Everything you do matters if there's resurrection. If there's no resurrection, nothing you do could possibly matter at the end of the day. And yet Paul is dealing with some who were mocking the idea of bodily resurrection. They had bought into the Greco-Roman idea that the body was bad and the soul was good. And they, they mocked it probably, you see here in verse 35, something along these lines. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of, with what kind of body do they come? And listen, Paul's response is abrupt. It is in your face. It is pretty intense. Literally in, Hebrew, in Greek, it's just one word, fool. You foolish person. Now, let's stop for a second here. Let's everybody take a breath here. Is Paul just being mean? No, he's not being mean. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why would he say, you foolish person? Paul is not dealing here with a sincere person asking a sincere question. He's dealing with a scoffer who wants to undermine biblical truth by asking a question to try to make it look absurd. And probably the idea was, so how does God reanimate a body that has deteriorated in the grave? What is it, some kind of mummy? What, what are we talking about? God's just going to revivify some sort of dead body in the ground? This is absurd. How could you possibly believe physical bodies come back to life? That's ridiculous. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's not a sincere question. Let me just give a biblical exa example of this. Do you remember the angel Gabriel shows up in the Christmas story first to Zechariah? Remember he was unable to have children with Elizabeth, his wife, as they were advanced in age? And he says, you're going to have a son, John? And then Zechariah says, how can I know this? How can this be? And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent here to tell you this message, and you don't believe it? You will not be able to speak until the birth of the child. And Zechariah says, nothing. <laughs> nothing to say at that point. Zechariah asks a question, but the question was actually coming from unbelief. It wasn't a sincere question. It was a question expressing, I can't believe God could give me a child at this age. It's not possible. That's why Gabriel responds that way. A little later, few months later, Gabriel shows up to Mary and says something similar. You're going to have a child, miraculously, as a virgin. And she says, how can this be? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and this, the, the Holy Spirit will allow you to be conceived this child, the Messiah. And she says, let it be as the Lord has said. Do you see that was a sincere statement from Mary? It was a sincere question coming from faith. Zechariah was coming from a moment of unbelief. And so Gabriel responds very differently. If Paul was dealing with a teenager in the church wrestling with the doctrine of resurrection, he would not say, you fool. That's not what would happen here, okay? Paul is dealing with someone who is a scoffer who wants to undermine the doctrine by asking this question, and Paul says, you are being a foolish person. Let's think about this, and so let's begin our first point. The, the resurrection of the body is, number one, reasonable, verses 35 to 44. Let's start in verse 36 here. 
And, and just to summarize, this is, it's, reasonable, it's reasonable because of God's activity all around us in nature. That's what Paul's going to say. It's reasonable because look at nature. Doesn't nature teach you this? You say, how's that? Verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Just stop here. Do you remember Jesus uh, on the week of his death, John 12, 24, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus is not, I don't think, neither is Paul, speaking literally here of saying the, the, the seed actually literally dies. It's speaking, think, compare it to human burial. You take a seed that looks nothing like wheat or an oak tree. You, know, you take this acorn, it looks nothing like an oak tree. You could, if a child, if you're trying to convince a four-year-old, this is what that oak tree used to look like, they would say, that's ridiculous. What do you, what do you think, I am a fool? I, that, there's, no way that's, there's no way that's possible. And so Paul would say, look at this acorn. I'm going to go over here. This acorn looks nothing like an oak tree, right? Child, if there's no, no better, would think that's ridiculous. Let's dig a burial plot. Let's put the acorn in the ground and let's cover it with dirt. It is now dead and buried, right? Metaphorically speaking, it's dead and buried. And what's going to happen? Well, if the Lord goes to work, if this acorn seed is good, if it works, it's going to break open, and what you're going to see is the roots and the, and the sprout starts to come up through the soil, and what looks like almost nothing at the beginning, if it is rightly taken care of over time, it becomes this magnificent, massive oak tree that really looks nothing like the original and yet is organically connected to the original. Paul says, look, if you think bodily resurrection is ridiculous because your body goes into the grave, and I'm arguing it comes out, Paul says, some glorified body, if you think that's ridiculous, have you ever seen a seed? Because that's how it works. It's death, burial, resurrection. We see it every spring as God brings life back right in front of us. And what, what's, what's being argued here is something called continuity and discontinuity between our current and our future bodies. You say, what does that mean? Jesus, he was crucified. That body was laid in the tomb. The stone was rolled over it. On Easter morning, it wasn't that Jesus was making appearances in a new body while his old body was still in the tomb. There was continuity between his body that died and his body that rose. The clearest mark of continuity was what Doubting Thomas saw. The marks of the nails still there in his wrists, the spear in the side, and in, in, in his feet. His body was in some sense continuous with that former body that died, but in some sense vastly different. The doors are locked in the upper room, and what? Jesus is just suddenly there. On the way to Emmaus, they get to Emmaus, he breaks the bread, they recognize Jesus, uh, the two disciples, and what? Jesus disappears from their sight. This body is far beyond what our body is capable of doing. It, it has abilities that go far beyond, but there's still a connection with that past body. There's continuity, and there is discontinuity. The seed is in some way connected to the oak tree, but very different from the oak tree. Verse 38, Paul's still arguing that the resurrection is reasonable based on God's activity in nature. Verse 28, 38, excuse me, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Let's go through these in reverse order, starting with fish. God designed fish, obviously, to dwell exactly where they dwell in the water. 
Mike and I and Molly and our kids and my, my wife, we were, we were taking a walk at the Botanical Gardens not that long ago, and uh, th these fish are tiny. I mean, they're barely even right to call these things fish that are swimming around, these little tiny things. But they, they were zipping around in this tiny little amount of water, and they were moving at unbelievable speed back and forth. And we just kind of, mar I just marveled for a second. That's an incredible design of these things, that they can zip around like that when they see your shadow coming over the water. Well, God designed fish with the scales and the fins and the gills because they are perfectly designed to swim in the habitat for which God made them. You know what it's like when you catch a fish and bring it out of the water. Suddenly it's gasping and it can't do anything but flop around there on the, the pier where you may be. He's given a fish a body just for its habitat, birds. Birds have been designed not just with feathers, which are magnificent the way that they are designed by God, but with this incredible light bone structure that allows them to be able to fly in the way that they do, and it's magnificent. God has designed them for the air, and he's given them a body that is equipped for flight. How about animals? I had to look this up. The Greek word here has to do with uh, beasts of burden, so animals that you ride on or that might carry loads for you. Just as a reference point, this word just used a few times in the New Testament. It's used for the good Samaritan, throws the wounded man on his animal. It's the same word here. So it's this idea of an animal that carries things, that idea. Well, did God create those animals to be able to do those kinds of things in their environment? Yes, he did. And then, of course, human beings are uniquely designed by God. We are not evolved from other pre-primate beings. We are uniquely designed by God. God picked up the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Uh, th this is God at work in a unique way, and he's given us the ability to do things that are unique to who we are. So can God design a body fit for the environment for which it is made? Yes. Do you see it all around you? Do you see where Paul's going with this? We're designed for a heavenly environment. Are we going to have a body that's fit for that environment? Yes, Yes, we will. Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Still talking about nature. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Pause here. Does God, do you see God's vast creativity? and artistry in the way he has designed bodies in the sky and animal bodies for their environments. Do we see God's incredible beauty and creativity? Yes, we do. Okay, let's keep going with his argument here. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So let, let's look at this. You ready for some good news? You want some encouragement right here? The body you have right now, this is not really going to be encouraging. The body that you have right now is perishable. It is going to die. Number two, it is, it is sown in dishonor. There's something dishonorable about our body in its fallen form. We still bear the image of God, but there's still something marred and dishonorable about our body. Number three, do we not know this all too well? We are sown in weakness. Our bodies are weak. And, you know, it's interesting, even the strongest among us physically, one day will not have that same kind of strength. And our body is a natural body. But here's the good news. Your body is going to one day be raised if you know Christ, imperishable, it is going to be glorious, it is going to be raised in power, and it is going to be a spiritual body. 
You may remember Philippians 3. I'll just read this real quick, the last couple verses. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It may be something small. Maybe you have some kind of small chronic pain issue. It may be something much bigger. I know numbers in this room have been through cancer of various kinds. We've all gone through different kinds of loss, different kinds of suffering. Some of us have been closer to death than others, but we have all thought of that and been perhaps at times wondering how close we might be. And here's the promise. The body you have now is not the body you always will have. It will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. How about this verse? We probably is familiar, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is what? Wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I love Sinclair Ferguson. A number of you know who that is. Sinclair Ferguson uh, is a wonderful preacher, Christian writer, and he used to be quite good at golf, if I understand correctly. He was quite a golf player is what I've heard. And uh, he said, I'm sure I've told this at some point along the way, but he was one time, I believe, at a driving range. And he said he had an old driver, and he's just sitting there hitting balls this day. And another guy gets up near him, and he had bought this state-of-the-art driver. And, you know, it's almost one of those like, cheat, it's like you got the cheat codes on this thing. You barely have to swing it, and the ball just sails through the air. And so Sinclair Ferguson, after a little while, the guy said, hey, do you want to try my driver out? I just got this thing. I'm really excited about it. And Sinclair Ferguson said, oh, I don't know. No, no, I'll, I'll take it. Okay. So Sinclair, and he's got a pretty good golf background. He gets this driver, and he sets up the ball, and he says, now listen, he said, in, in my older age, I'm not hitting as well these days as I used to. He said, but man, something happened. I hit that ball, and it was a perfect connection. That ball just sailed high and straight and long, all, and he, he just said, that's magnificent. He said, so I put up the other ball, and I hit another one. He just, the same thing. It just went sailing through the air. It's amazing how switching a golf club makes such a difference in my swing. And then Sinclair Ferguson said, I just, it's, a, it's an interesting way to say this. I never forgot it. He said, my goodness, is it not hard, the battle against our sin? Temptation is there every day to be lazy, to be proud, to not be perfectly and totally honest at every moment. There's, it just haunts us all day long to think prideful thoughts of ourselves, to not genuinely want to glorify Christ, to be doing things from bad motives. We, we all know this every day. Paul says, when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Don't you feel the struggle every single day of your flesh? You just want to say, Lord, I want to be rid of this body of death. That's why at the end of Romans 7, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, Sinclair Ferguson said, One day this body of death is going to be gone. This perishable, dishonorable body, it's going to be gone. And there's going to be a renewal, a resurrected body. And he said, With that resurrection body, much like that new driver that just hit that ball straight, perfect shot, he said, your with, with, get, get this, with your resurrection body, Sinclair said, it's going to be easy not to sin, and it's going to be easy to delight in the Lord. Spiritual dry days will never happen again. I, I want that. I want to get to the point where I don't have to fight for half an hour in my quiet time 
before there's anything going on in terms of communion with God so I can get my mind fixed on him. I mean, how much of our life is just wrestling to just see him and taste him and know that he's good? And so often, uh, C.S. Lewis said, it's like we're digging trenches in the dirt waiting for the rain to come. And so often it doesn't feel like there's a lot of rain coming. We're just digging trenches with our duties and we're waiting, Lord, please pour out your spirit on me. Listen, there is a day coming, if you know the Lord, where it will be easy not to sin. The battle will be over. The prideful thoughts will be gone. The delight and the glory of the Lord will be absolutely overwhelming. Your, your whole, when you look up, it will be Christ and nothing but Christ and all Christ, all the time. And it will be a joy for that. It will be a delight. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. The, the body of death will be gone. This mortal body will be gone and we will awake in his likeness and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That is a glorious truth. Let me just say here, uh, let me move to my second point. The resurrection body is certain. This is verses 45 to 49. The resurrection body was, is reasonable, now it is certain because of the work of the last Adam. The resurrection body is certain because of the work of the last Adam. Verse 45. So he's just said at the end of 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the natural that is first, but the, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. A couple of comments here. Number one, I know the virgin birth is nowhere mentioned in this passage, but let me say, the virgin birth makes sense because, listen, if it's true, like we said earlier in the chapter, in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive, if it's true that we are all born in Adam naturally, in his guilt and fallenness and sinfulness, if that's how we are born naturally, and by the way, everybody on earth is either right now in Adam, their federal head, or in Christ, their federal head. Right now, at this moment, everyone on the planet is either born dead in sin in Adam, like we were all born, or we have now been transferred, if we know Christ, into Christ, and we are now in Christ. But, but however you look at it, Adam... Was a, was a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Jesus was virgin-born. What's the significance of that? One thing is this allows him to be born and truly human without being under Adam's condemnation. Paul, uh, Jesus escapes the condemnation that comes in Adam because of the virgin birth, the miraculous conception in the womb of Mary, and because of that, Jesus is not born dead in sin and can actually represent us without sin. How much better is Jesus than Adam? It's almost a funny question to try to ask because Jesus, you know, made Adam, but Adam is a living being. That's pretty good. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. Adam was alive, sinned, and died. Jesus is alive, and he gives life to all who know him. He gives life. Let me say a word here about the natural body and the spiritual body. If you, okay, 
we, we're used to the word natural being like physical and the word spiritual being non-physical. So when we hear the words natural body, we think physical body, like I've got right now. And when we hear spiritual body, you think not physical body. That's not what this means. Um, it, let me just give you a, a verse reference here. Earlier in the same book, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, Paul says this. Listen, same words here for natural and spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. He's talking about people in the here and now. The natural person is an unbeliever. The spiritual person is a believer. Does a Christian today have a physical body? Yes, but they're still called a spiritual person. Spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. It means completely controlled and mastered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you get this? Spiritual means controlled by the Holy Spirit, not non-physical. This is really important. Um, let me give you one of these. If you have your Bible, just flip to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians just to show you one more clear example. Paul wants to talk about the manna in the wilderness and the water they drank from the rock, 1 Corinthians 10. Listen, Paul uses the same word for spiritual right here. Look at uh, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 10. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, verse 3, and all ate the same what? Spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Okay, the, the food they ate was manna. Was it physical? Yes. Was it also given by the Spirit? Yes. So spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. It means from the Spirit. Okay, let's go back to chapter 15. Here is the simple point. In Adam, we have all died and fallen. In Christ, Christ came and did what the last Adam failed to do, taking our sin upon himself, dying under God's judgment for our sins, being buried physically, rising physically, ascending physically to the right hand of the Father, and all who turn and trust in him will be forgiven of sin and clothed in his righteousness, and we await the same resurrection that Jesus has. We do not become gods, but we do share in the physical resurrection much in the same way as Jesus did. Let me also just add one more thing. This is, should be obvious. Did the Apostle Paul believe Adam was a historical person? This argument would make no sense at all if Adam was mythological and not historical. Of course Paul believed in the historical, literal person of Adam. It's his whole argument is founded on it. Just as in Adam we all die, in Christ we are all raised. Clearly he believed in the literal, historical Adam and Eve. All right, let's move into our last point here. Number three, the resurrection body is necessary. This is verses 50 to 58, because mortal bodies cannot inherit immortality. The resurrection body is necessary because mortal bodies cannot inherit immortality. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Just stop there. Do you see where the word necessary is coming from? Your physical body now cannot live in the new heavens and new earth. Because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Your body now cannot make it unchanged into the new creation. Therefore, the resurrection is necessary. We have to have a resurrected body for the new creation that is coming. Verse 51. Well, let me just pause there. I mean, how, how incredibly limited our bodies are. Someone pointed out, you know, if you want to go diving just more than 10 or 20 feet into the ocean, you've got to have scuba gear. Why? Because your body's not designed for that environment. You can't go down there for a long time without dying. Or if you want to go up to the top of Mount Everest, if you want to spend 
almost any time at the top of Mount Everest, you better bring your oxygen tank with you because you will not be able to breathe over five miles or so, however high it is, in the air. So our bodies are so limited, there's just this tiny little area where we can live without, an, without some kind of either scuba gear or some kind of uh, astronaut suit or something along those lines. We, we are so limited. And so if we're going to make it into the new creation, we better have a body that can handle that new reality. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. Now pause here. The word mystery in the New Testament is a fascinating word how Paul uses it and Jesus. The word mystery means something that was previously concealed but is now being revealed. It's not like a mystery novel like that. It's a mystery as in something that was previously hidden and is now made clear. What is the thing that is, that is being revealed? Look at 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. If you want to read more about this, you can look at the end of First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, there's other passages as well. And I will just say here that the mystery isn't that some people will be alive when Christ returns. I think that would have been obvious. The mystery is that in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, everyone, believer, dead or alive, will have a physically transformed body in a moment. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your spot here. Just turn to the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because Paul uses almost the same phrase, about death being swallowed up by life in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to very briefly try to explain what I think is going on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here, just so I don't have to explain it as I go. The tent would be our physical body now, and the heavenly home that we're going to receive is the resurrection body, okay? So the tent that's going to be destroyed is our body now. The home that is stable is the resurrection body. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, I don't think he means planet earth, I think he means our earthly physical body. If, 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 uh, if our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's our resurrection body. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, our resurrection body, we may not be found naked. That is a soul without a body. We don't want to be a disembodied soul forever. We want to have a body that is further clothed with a resurrection body. A soul that is further clothed. Verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up. Same word from 1 Corinthians 15. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. It is clear that death being swallowed up by life, now just hear me out on this, I do not think death being swallowed up by life happens the moment I die and my soul goes to heaven. Because you know what that is? That's the moment of death, not the moment of life. When I die, my body is dead and my soul goes to heaven. That's true right now. If I died right now, my, my body would go into the ground, my soul would go to heaven. But that's not when death is swallowed by life. That's when death exists. The separation of the soul from the body is when death is reigning in a sense. And yet, at the resurrection from the dead, my soul will come back and reunite with my resurrected body. And at that moment, death has been swallowed up by victory. The moment of the resurrection is when death is no more. Let me give a quick illustration. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I heard this from, maybe it was Alistair Begg, someone like that. Uh, picture that you've got uh, a kid jumping on the trampoline in the backyard, young boys jumping on the trampoline in the backyard, and there's, some, there's a honeybee uh, buzzing around near this kid. And the dad comes, the kid sort of yells, there's a bee over here. And the dad comes over to try to help, and the, the, the dad's trying to swat at the bee, and the bee stings the dad on the arm. Okay? And as you know, I had to look this up to make sure it was honeybees. Honeybees detach their stinger when they sting you, right? So they die. They cannot live for long after they've stung you, and so their stinger stays in you. And if a honeybee stings the dad on the arm, and it kind of sits there for a second, and it flies away, it's now mortally wounded, okay? It can still, I suppose, fly around for a little bit, but within a short time, it's going to fall down dead. That is a pretty good metaphor for what's happened here. The reason why death is a true enemy is because behind death is the penalty for law-breaking. It is hell. It is the everlasting judgment of God against my sin, which is just, and that is terrifying, and that is what I deserve. And so that stinger is coming, and it's like death is this bee flying around. It's got this venomous stinger in its tail, and at any moment, death could strike you, and because sin against the law is in that stinger, the venom will, will inject into you, and you are going to die eternally. And yet Jesus stands in the way. Death stings Christ and empties all the venom of our sin and God's judgment into Christ. Christ dies in our place, and now that bee might still be buzzing around, Death may still have be something we have to face, but its stinger has been removed. Death itself is mortally wounded. Death itself will one day die. Death will not have the final say or the final victory. Christians weeping over a graveside, which is an appropriate thing to do. That's not how any Christian story ends. It ends with us raised from the dead, reigning with Christ on a new earth, triumphing in him and never ever to die again as he wipes away every tear from our face in the resurrection. Let me move to the last verse. Here's the therefore. Therefore, just pause, don't ever buy the lie that doctrine and life don't connect. Paul just did 57 heavy-hitting verses of the doctrine of the resurrection. He defended it every way you can think of, argued for what it means, what it doesn't mean, what it's going to look like, what it's not going to look like. He just spent 57 verses defending the doctrine of resurrection. Then he says, therefore, let it affect everything you do from here on out. Doctrine is for living. It's not just to have a big head of doctrine. It's so that we can live out the truth that we see. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Jesus says, a person who gives a cup of cold water to one of, my, one of these little ones because he's a disciple will never lose his reward. If the resurrection is true, which it is, the smallest act of God-glorifying kindness will never lose its reward. It's eternally significant. If there is no resurrection of the dead, the greatest so-called act of heroism in the end is unimportant and vain. Well, I want to close with a story from Randy Alcorn. A number of y'all know Randy Alcorn, Christian author, speaker. You've got to be encouraged by his love of heaven and eternity. He's written that huge book on heaven, if you've seen that before. Well, this is just from this last month. I'm going to take an extra minute here to read this, so just stick with me as I read an extended piece here, but I think you'll find it, uh, I hope you'll find it somewhat powerful. Just in the past month or so, uh, Randy Alcorn's wife, Nancy, uh, died and went to heaven after several years battling cancer. This is what he put online on Twitter, actually, just uh, over the last couple of months. I want to read you several things he wrote, so please listen here from Randy Alcorn. Th this is how we are to face death as Christians. I think this is an exemplary model of how you face death in an unbelievably difficult moment in the loss of his wife. This is Monday, March 21st, this past, uh, just a few weeks ago. Quote, a timely prayer request. On Saturday, my wife Nancy told me she did not feel uh, that she did not, she felt she did not have much time left in this world. This morning, Monday, 11 a.m., my daughters and their families will gather at our house. If Nancy is right that not much time remains, then this will likely be the final gathering in this world of our tribe of 11. Thankfully, eternal life transcends the grave. This world, now under the curse, is a broken world waiting and longing to be redeemed. Nancy is ready to be with Jesus, but she wanted to speak into the lives of our kids and especially our grandkids. I would deeply appreciate your prayers for her and for this unique and I suspect unforgettable family gathering. Tuesday, March 22nd. Thank you everyone who prayed for our family yesterday. I seriously cannot imagine any family having a more Christ-centered send-off and short-term goodbye of a loved one than we had. It was truly all I could have hoped for and prayed for. Nancy heard words of deep love and respect from her children and grandchildren, sons-in-law and husbands. She spoke to us for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. It was remarkably clear, way longer than any period of time she has spoken with clarity since she was in the hospital. What an emotional yet truly unforgettable time. Two of the grandsons said they would never forget this day, and the others in their own way made it clear that they felt the same. Nancy's desire was to have an eternal impact on the lives of her grandsons. I am so incredibly proud of her. She is so weary, and for her sake, I can't help but release her completely to God and ask him to take her sooner rather than later, but of course, we will trust him and thank him for every day that we still have with her on this earth. Thank you, King Jesus, for answering prayer in an even more powerful way than had you answered our prayer to cure her cancer. That's amazing. And we believe you will soon remove the cancer whenever you choose to take her home. Monday, March 28th, about a week later, Nancy is with Jesus. So happy for her, sad for us, but the happiness for her triumphs over the sadness. Grieving is ahead, and it will be hard. But these last years, and especially this last month, have given us a head start on the grieving process. I am so proud of my wife for her dependence on Jesus and her absolute trust in the sovereign plan and love of God. Nancy is and always will be an inspiration to me. 
I am with family and friends now, thanking God for his grace and the promises of Jesus that we will live with him forever in a world without the curse. And he will wipe away all the tears and all the reasons for the tears. All God's children really will live happily ever after. This is not a fairy tale. It is the blood-bought promise of Jesus. What a great and kind God he is. As of a few hours ago, Nancy now lives where she sees this firsthand, in the place where joy truly is the air she breathes. And then he quotes Psalm 1611, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he closes by saying this, Thank you so much for all your prayers. Some of you for four years of praying consistently for Nancy. My heart is full of gratitude to you. Don't feel your prayers were not answered. Many of them were, and many others were answered in a better way than we could have ever asked. Overwhelmed with gratitude to the one full of grace and truth. Let me ask you, what other worldview or belief system has a better answer to the problem of death than the empty tomb of Jesus? Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would awaken us to how fleeting life in this world truly is. I know of numerous miscarriages that have happened in this church. I know of the loss of children and siblings and spouses. Lord, there has been much loss even in this church. Lord, we are so thankful that death does not get the last word. We are so thankful that Jesus gets the last word. We are so thankful that the sting of death, which is our sin against the law of God, that sting emptied out its venom into Jesus on the cross. And now all who will turn and trust by simple childlike faith in the risen Jesus, all who will trust in him, do not have to fear this last enemy. Because although it is an enemy, the stinger has been removed. That which makes death horrifying is what comes after. And we know through Christ that what comes after is our soul going to heaven to be with Christ, which is far better. And one day the bodily resurrection from the dead, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell and reign forever. God, help us to have our hearts fixed on these realities. This is not mythology. As Randy Alcorn said, this is not a fairy tale. This is the blood-bought promise of the dead and risen Jesus. So God, help these things to feel real to us because they are real and help us to have the courage to face death with a kind of hope that only the gospel could offer. If anyone does not know you, Lord, I pray even right now they would turn and trust in Jesus. Reading from Hebrews chapter two. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you tasted death for us. We are so thankful that you destroyed he who has the power of death, the devil, and that you have freed us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly live in these truths. Again, it does not mean we do not grieve. It means we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And Lord, help us to be different in this way. I pray those around us who do not know you would see that, that they would be intrigued by that, and that they might even ask us for the hope that is in us. God, be with us this week. I pray you'd be honored in our lives. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.